Hey, good morning, 1025. Uh, you guys came to the wrong service. Trisha Morgan was here first service. And next service, Pastor Nick is going to be sharing. And when I walked in and saw Pastor Nick, he said, hey, nice jeans, Luke. They're so next gen of you. And I'm like, they should go to your service and be pre-gen, previous generation, right? I'm just kidding. That was a bad joke. Uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It is such a privilege to serve our community. I have the best job because uh, the students... And the leaders that lead the student ministry, we get to go to Florida and paddleboard with students and zip line and fall retreats, and we have such a cool role. So thank you for supporting us with prayer and finances. It means the world. It really, really does mean everything to us. If this is your first time and you're new this morning, I want you to know that this church exists to see people that are far from God apprenticed into a passionate relationship with Jesus. And that we believe that nobody is too far from God to experience life change through Jesus. And we are committed to that vision. So each and every time we gather, we want to see that come to life. And so if you, if you buy into that vision, we want you to be a part of that direction as a church. And we've just seen God grow this church um, over and over and over throughout the year. And we're just excited. We're so, so excited to see where God is going to be taking us. If you, if you are in here and you're like, I don't really know God, I'm just here because a friend invited me or it's starting to get cold and I like warm coffee at church on Sunday mornings, we want you to know that your life matters a lot and that you're not an accident and that God actually is inviting you into his story day in and day out and wants uh, you to, to believe that his version of your life is the best version of your life. And so I hope that a little bit of this morning will point in that Direction, And I believe that God has a message for our church this morning. And I'm super excited to share it with you. But before we do, would you all bow your heads with me and we're going to pray. Father, we are so blown away by your grace and your mercy each day that you would withhold what we deserve, which is separation from you. But instead, you just favor us. And so you look at each one of us and you say, son, daughter, I love you as you are, where you are. And that's really hard for us sometimes, Lord, to believe and comprehend. But we're going to believe it this morning. We're going to trust that, Father, you have got us in your hands. Despite the instability of what our world seems to be and our society seems to be, we trust that you are stable and you are good. And so, Father, I pray for the heart that is far from you or that is stubborn this morning, that you'd break that heart open and reveal your love in full to each of us where we are at. We love you so much, Father, and we pray all these things in your name. The church says, amen. This right here, this right here is what I call a buzz bait. Now, if any of you are fishermen in this room, you'll know exactly what this is. This thing kind of goes on top of the water, and this funny little uh, gold thing spins like that. It makes kind of like a blah, 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 blah sound across the top of the water. And this absolutely crushes largemouth bass. Fishing in my family is like we follow Jesus and then like fishing. Like it's really a big deal in my family. My dad, my, my grandfather on both sides, my brother, like everyone of my best, like everyone that I love loves fishing. Everybody. And so this is a really big deal. I've had the best season of fishing in my entire life this year. I've caught well over 100 fish. Like two weeks ago, I caught like a six-pound largemouth bass in my grandmother's backyard. My grandmother's backyard is a pond that is like, you know, like the kind of pond that's like, that's a fake pond because there's like blue dye in it. 
like gross. Then you catch the biggest fish ever. I'm like, how is this even possible? This guy right here, I'm telling you, this guy right here is what's called a skirted spinnerbait. And look at all the sparkle and jewels on that, right? Like girls ought to love this. Like there's just, there's all kinds of just glitter and shine and just, and this thing runs through the water and these, these silver spoons kind of act like other fish following the, the white skirted thing. And I've seen pike crush this and smallmouth bass crush this. This thing is, oh my gosh, I can't even tell you. And then there's this guy. This is what's called a popper. And there's a little, if you listen real carefully, there's like a little rattle inside. And when you bring this guy, you throw this into a lily pad, right? And you just kind of, you just kind of plop, 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 pop it along. And for whatever reason, smallmouth bass just crush this thing. And it's just like that fishing is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Like that is how much I love fishing. And the reason I share this with you this morning is because this has been really, really heavy on my heart. I've spent the entire summer and now fall fishing, and this is just something the Lord has been showing me over and over and over again. And this is going to be a sharp left turn, so put your seatbelts on. <laughs> this is exactly the behavior of the enemy. Let me explain what I mean by that is that this is nothing more than a painted piece of plastic. Okay, there's like green scales on top and like a little bit of shine and some eyes. And if you think about it, the fisherman is the greatest deceiver of all time. You throw lie after lie after lie into the lake and you're hoping that these fish are deceived by these plastic lures. And so you throw something like this and it's obviously not a real fish and the fish are dumb enough to believe that it is. And the fish see this, and they're like, oh my gosh, I've got to have that big piece of shiny plastic and metal in my mouth. Like, I must, I must eat that. Right? And so this is, like, fishing is the greatest sport of deception ever. And yet people spend, like, millions of dollars and tons of time and, on fishing, and, I, you know, I've spent a lot of money and time fishing, and I just keep being reminded, like, wow, I'm really deceiving these fish, like, over and over and over again. And... I was in Canada in August fishing, and I thought to myself, like, I feel like that's what the enemy does. He just deceives. And his real power, his only real power, is deception. And scripture actually accounts for this reality. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be alert and of sober mind, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Pastor Earlywine, the pub pastor, about a month ago, touched on this idea. It was something I was also thinking about and wanting to, to speak out loud was the reality that our society seems so unstable and so uncertain, and the default posture of humans and, and Christians alike is, well, that group right there is the problem, and this group right here is the solution, and we somehow believe that being pitted against each other is the solution to our world's problems. Identifying the problem and identifying the solution. Oh, they're the problem, they're the solution. Oh, they're the problem, we're the solution. Oh, you know, the government's the problem, the government's the solution. And we, we keep coming up with things like that, these binary types of things. And, 
I'm telling you right now, if we examine scripture for what it is, we will see that the enemy is the problem and that Jesus is the solution. And that the chaos and the suffering and the pain that we seem to perceive in our news and media and across the world is nothing more than the enemy prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is the ultimate angler. If you think about it, the enemy is the ultimate angler. He throws lie after lie after lie, attempting to deceive. The enemy is committed to your destruction. That's the sobering truth this morning. And you're like, yeah, I wish I'd gone to third service, Luke. The enemy is committed to your destruction and no one knows this better than Jesus. And let me tell you right now that if you are coming here this morning like, I don't feel like anyone understands me or the pain that I'm going through or the suffering that I'm enduring or the the problems that I have, let me just tell you that no one knows better than Jesus. No one knows better than Jesus that the enemy is committed to destruction. If you have a Bible, please open it to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to examine some really critical scripture on this topic where the enemy is uh, having some time with Jesus in the wilderness. And we're going to see how they interact. We're going to see how Jesus responds to the enemy's persuasions and attempts to deceive. He's the ultimate angler, remember? He's throwing bait and lure in front of Jesus. And we're going to see how Jesus responds to that. So as we open it up to Matthew chapter 4, let me offer a prayer. Father, I pray that as we look to your scripture and attempt to discern what it means and how to apply it, that your power would be with us, accompanying us, and making these mysteries known to us. We love you so much, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Matthew chapter 4 says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Let's pause there for a moment. Now, I eat lunch every single day at 11.30. Anybody with me? 11.30s? Yeah, or noon, whatever, sometimes noon. Okay, I, there's just no way that I could fathom skipping lunch and then somehow being productive in the second half of the day. It's just not an option. Like, if I have to go and, like, I don't know, like, find some goldfish in the kid's wing over there and just, like, eat it for lunch, I will do that just to be productive in the second half of the day. I I could not skip lunch. And here Jesus just went 40 days and 40 nights with no food. So of course he's hungry. So there would be no greater temptation for him than to use his God card, swipe it, and turn a stone into bread. That would be the ultimate, like, okay, pleasure. Like, I'm hungry. I can turn stone into bread. I want to do that. Of course, he would have bowed a knee to the enemy doing that. This is the first temptation, pleasure. This is the first temptation, pleasure. Here Jesus is confronted with doing something that will ultimately just give him pleasure to the stomach. In this case, it's specific to hunger, but pleasure in general. 
Let's move on. But what did Jesus say? He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So immediately after the enemy tempts him with, hey, why don't you just turn that stone into bread? I know you're hungry, man. Why don't you just eat some bread? Why don't you just pleasure yourself? It's fine. The first thing that Christ does is say, it is written. No man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3, arming himself against the enemy with the word of God. Let's move on. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The enemy attempts to lie and, and, and manipulate Jesus using scripture. Did you catch that? The enemy just quoted Psalm 91 in attempt to persuade Jesus to do something that was tempting. Now, let me give you some context here. This is amazing. So the old city of Jerusalem, which is where Jesus and the enemy were right now, he puts Jesus on this pinnacle, the highest point Picture like, you know, picture like the tower in Lord of the Rings, right? That big tower that's in the, of the two towers. You guys know what I'm talking about. Okay, so that tower, right? Middle of the temple. The temple, the old city of Jerusalem, was 220 acres with its walls. That's roughly one square kilometer, just under one square mile, about 0.77 square miles. And at that time, there were 120 inhabitants in the city of Jerusalem, 120,000. It's a big difference, let me clarify. 120,000 inhabitants in the city of Jerusalem in just under one square mile. To give you some perspective, Carmel is 48 and a half square miles. And we have 86,000 people that live in Carmel. So all of a sudden, shrink it down to less than one square mile and you've got 120,000 people. It would have been the perfect moment for Jesus to prove that he was God. By throwing himself off of the tower in front of all of these people and then not dying. Like we've all pictured doing this. Like I wish I could fly, right? I wish I could jump off something and survive. We try to do that in cliff jumping. Sometimes it works, sometimes you get hurt. But here Jesus is like, okay, like, you know, I, I could. I could throw myself off and it would be the ultimate power trip. It would be the ultimate power display for Jesus to prove to everyone present that he indeed is God. But instead, he knows that that is not the power the Father wants him to show. The Father wants him to preserve that power for, for the cross. The ultimate display of power raising from the dead. So yeah, it would have been the perfect moment for Jesus to show his power. This is the second temptation. Power. Power. First being pleasure, the second being power. And what does Jesus immediately do to combat the lie of the enemy? He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 saying, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. If he had jumped off of that pinnacle and survived, it would have triggered an immediate revolution. 
putting Jesus on display as absolutely the instrument of justice by God. But it would have totally erased the future cross. There would have been no need for it. And that was not the plan of the Father. So pleasure and power, the first and second temptation. Let's continue on. Again, the devil took him on it to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I give to you. If you fall down and worship me, then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. The key phrase here in this passage is when the enemy uses all these things I will give to you. So picture Jesus standing on the highest mountain in Jerusalem and the enemy is able to put on display all of the kingdoms of the world, all of the wealth and the assets that those kingdoms had within them, all that he could possess. And here Jesus is confronted with the third and final temptation, possessions. All that Jesus could possess within all of these kingdoms and all of the wealth and assets included in those kingdoms and the enemy knows how vulnerable the human condition is in possessing. Especially in our context, in middle America, we are vulnerable to possessing The enemy knows how much we want that thing or those things and how much we put stock into wealth and assets and and sometimes that can replace God on the throne of our hearts. And yes, the enemy knew that and and was tempting Jesus with possessing all of the globe's kingdoms. Pleasure, power, and possessions. All of humanity's decisions that rebel against God fall into one of these three categories. Pleasure, power, and possessions. If you were to think about something that you're struggling with right now, you could probably fit it into one of those three categories. So Jesus, no one knows better than him what we and what you are going through. Which one of those three do you relate to the most? Pleasure, power, and possessions. Maybe it's all three as I do. Maybe it's one specific one. Maybe you have formed a habit in one or all of them, and it's become normal to engage in pleasures that contradict the standards of God, or engage in power that contradicts the standards of God, or possessions that contradict God's standards. But remember how the enemy works, right? He's the great angler. So he takes the lure, and he says, why don't you just, why don't you just give yourself a little bit more pleasure? go ahead. You can have her. You can can have him. It's going to feel so good. Yeah, go go ahead. Just drink a little bit more of that. Keep keep drinking. You want to feel good. Just just eat a little bit more until you really black out. Why don't you take that and and take this so that your your mind is numb? It'll feel great. Why don't you look at this or look at that? It'll, It'll feel really, really good. Just go ahead. Or maybe you're more like vulnerable to power, and, and, and the enemy throws the bait right in front of your face, and he goes, why don't, why don't you just do whatever it takes to get to the top? Just do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter if it's unethical or contradicts the moral integrity of God's standards. Just, just do whatever it takes to get a bit more power. 
Don't worry if it's, if it's cheating. Just get to the top. Go ahead and say that manipulating thing to your spouse. Go ahead and say that, that harmful thing to your wife or harmful thing to your husband. Whatever it, whatever it takes for you to feel powerful. The enemy just throws that lure right in front of us. Just do what it takes to be powerful. Or, or maybe you're the, you're the last one. Maybe it's, maybe it's possessions. Maybe you're like, you see, you see this, this lure right in front of your face. The enemy goes, you know what? Just keep collecting stuff. Keep possessing. You, go ahead, buy some more. Buy some more. It doesn't matter if, if it puts you into unsustainable debt. Just go ahead. Keep collecting. Keep buying. Don't, don't worry if it, don't worry if it, if, if you can't, if you're just buying it on credit. You don't really have any money to pay. Just keep going. Once you collect more of that, you'll be happy and content and satisfied. It's good. It's good. Here's the funny thing about fishing, church. And I've been fishing for a while and I've seen this over and over again. When you, when you throw a lure into the water and you're, do, you're, you, you're using whatever action it takes to catch the fish, popping it along, you know, reeling it quickly or slowly, whatever, and then the fish bites the hook, you set it. And for those fishermen in here, you know what I'm talking about. You just, you know, you give it a quick yank so that you can really, really get that hook into the mouth of the fish. As soon as that fish bites the hook and you set the hook, it immediately starts fighting for its life. And although I don't know how much of a conscience fish have, I'm pretty sure they regretted biting that hook. And you start to reel in that fish. You start to reel it in, and you, and you bring it up, and, and you're holding this fish, and you're like, oh, I caught a fish. This is awesome. God is good, right? And the fish is like, I can't breathe. Like, put me back in the water, right? Freak, unfrequently, this happens, where a fish wants the, the lure so, so badly that it will actually swallow a hook or swallow the, the lure into its, into its throat, in which case, it doesn't happen often, but you can't really do much. It's extremely difficult to get that hook out of the throat of the fish. It's just, it's almost impossible. And, and when and if that happens on occasion, the fish typically dies. And that is the goal of our enemy. His goal is straightforward. He wants us to swallow the hook and die. But there's really, really, really good news. The power of the enemy and his persuasion and lies are small and weak and pathetic when compared to the power of our almighty God in heaven who sits on a throne, who sees it all, and who's in control of all and puts his foot on the enemy's head each and every day. The power of God is the one who splits seas, who makes the sun stand still, who raises dead men to life, gives sight to the blind, heals lame men, feeds thousands of people with just a little bit of food. So when we talk about the enemy's lies and his abilities to deceive humanity, we're talking about something that is weak and pathetic. Something that can easily be countered, just as Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Every single time that the enemy casted a lure right in front of Jesus, what does he say? He says, it is written. It is written. 
That is really, really good news. When we see Jesus' ability to combat the lies of the enemy. Yes, Jesus was fully God, you bet. In his humanity, fully man, fully God. He never sinned, but he was tempted. He never sinned. He lived a perfect life, but he was tempted. So he understands and relates to humanity's temptation. You know, Tim Keller, he's a super influential pastor I respect a lot. He sums up the thought about, God, about Jesus using the word of God to combat the enemy's lies. He says this, Look at Jesus Christ. Every time he was in trouble, he used the word of God. When he was tempted, he used the word. When he was suffering on the cross, he used the word. So right there we have Jesus being the ultimate in authority of how we ought to engage in combating the enemy's persuasions and lies in our life. Jesus had what I like to call a spiritual habit in God's word. A spiritual habit in God's word. The reading and applying of the word was a habituation for him. It was just normal for Jesus to engage in God's word daily. At the time, of course, it wasn't a Bible yet. It was scrolls, okay? So, but he would consult the scrolls often, using them to find energy and power to combat the enemy's persuasions. Church, what does our habit in God's word really look like? This is a great time just to be honest with ourselves and take stock of our spiritual walk, of our walk with Jesus, and say, what does my walk with Jesus look like? What does my spiritual habit in God's word really look like? Is it daily? Is it weekly? Is it monthly? Is it only on the holidays? I, I hope that I can persuade you that anything less than daily, and we will feel spiritually hungry I know this. Over the weekend, I skipped two days of just being in God's Word. I was on vacation in North Carolina, and I remember just feeling spiritually hungry. I didn't come up with that. Jesus is the one that just said, man cannot live on bread alone, but instead on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We must trust that God's Word has the power and wisdom to spiritually nourish us as we engage in a habit of consulting the Word of God. Many of you might be like, excellent at this. Maybe you're like, Luke, I, I'm in the Word every day and it's, it's, I can't do anything else apart from it. And I would say, keep going. Just keep going. That spiritual habit in God's Word is your spiritual nourishment. It is the food for your soul. Just as my 11.30 hour is food for my lunch hour to be productive in the second half of the day. We must trust in the power and wisdom of God's word and engage in a daily habit. And I'm afraid that some of you might think, Luke, that sounds legalistic. Luke, that sounds just a little bit too much. I don't know if I can do every day, Luke. I could probably do like, I don't know, Christmas morning, maybe Thanksgiving dinner. I could do when there's a tragedy in life or a tragedy in my family. Charles Spurgeon once said, and this is one of my favorite dead guys to quote. Let's be honest, they're not really worth quoting unless they're dead. Charles Spurgeon says, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Now, of course, we know that, that a Christian can engage and endure, rather, suffering and pain and still have having God's word. Yes, of course, a, a Christian can endure immense pain and immense suffering 
and consult God's word on a daily basis, but you understand the spirit of what Charles Spurgeon is saying. That is, I believe, the power of the habit in God's word. I'm going to briefly mention a second habit here that I think is critical, and I wish I had another hour to just talk about prayer, but I'm going to just briefly mention why it is so powerful and why it is so critical that we as Christians also have a habit in prayer. No one had a, a habit in prayer better than Jesus, even better than Daniel. Daniel was a prophet, and he was in prayer three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening, despite being attacked by lions. You can read about it in Daniel 6.10. And Jesus had a better habit than even him, and Jesus would slip away. That's what the scriptures say. He would slip away and spend this alone time with the Father. He'd go and he'd consult God and he'd speak to God, hear from God, speak to God, hear from God. And he had a habit in prayer. Now there's something unusual about scripture and prayer and the fundamental, how critical it is to have at least those two in our habits. Is there many ways to connect with God? Absolutely. I have friends that paint and sing and have a whole variety of ways they connect with God. And you bet those are so important to connect with God the way that you connect with God. But let me put a little bit of a disclaimer on this. I'm only emphasizing the habits that Jesus had. I'm only putting emphasis on the habit of scripture and prayer because Jesus put emphasis on scripture and prayer. So you bet, continue to go on long walks and connect with God in the variety of ways that you do that. May I encourage you to include a habit in scripture and a habit in prayer. When Jesus started talking about prayer, he didn't get all complicated about it. He didn't get all like, here's like the nine steps that you do to engage in prayer. Here's like the things that you ought to, I mean, here's how to have like the best prayer life now and wrote a book about it. No, he didn't do that. Sorry, that was a mean joke. Like, he didn't do that. But instead, he says in Matthew 6, 6, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. As Jesus was speaking those scriptures over the disciples and over the crowds that were listening to him, he had just finished 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying. So he had just engaged in all that prayer. He, he kind of knew what he was talking about. He just started talking about prayer. And he's like, well, I just did for you as a prayer. It's really important that, that you also do what I do. And I consulted the scriptures. I fasted. I prayed. But he prayed alone. Now, typically, that kind of goes against uh, modern church activity. We like to pray together. And I think it's critical that we pray together. Do we pray alone at all? It's a question worth asking. When we pray, do we only pray in groups? Or do we also pray alone? Because Jesus just suggested that we do first pray alone. Go into your room and close the door. The word room there can also mean, and does also mean closet. Which is where we get the Greek word monasterion which is where we get the English word monastery. It's as if Jesus is offering a wilderness place to the people that are in the city, that have commitments in the city as people are listening to him preach this message. And Jesus offers up this new wilderness. You know, a monastery is nothing more than a place where monks live together alone 
to pray. That's like their whole life. Church, where is your monastery? Where is your monastery? Where is that place of quiet solitude, undistracted, where you can speak to God and he can speak to you? If you do not have a monastery, find a monastery. You know, prayer is this unbelievable, powerful thing where we get to speak and hear from God. One of my favorite authors and pastors, Mark Batterson, he leads a church in Washington, D.C. He wrote a whole book about prayer that totally transformed my entire outlook on life, really. And he says, this is one of his stronger quotes from that book, prayers are prophecies. They are the best predictors of your spiritual future. Who you become is determined by how you pray. Ultimately, the transcript of your prayers becomes the script of your life. Now, that's a lot of stock in prayer. You know, Jesus once said, you do not have because you do not ask. Let me tell you a quick story about prayer that I, that I think that you'll enjoy. When we started the student ministry here about a year ago, we had about a dozen students involved, which was amazing that we were reaching a dozen students. And we were just like, yes, this is good. We're discipling a new generation. We're going to change the landscape of youth culture across this city. That was our goal. We were going to accept nothing less. And we said, you know what? We want to have a summer camp experience. We want to take students down to Florida and paddleboard and and have a lot of fun and watch Henry run into the ocean screaming, the bees, the bees, they're after me, right? That happened. And so we went down to Florida. And before we got this trip kind of in our minds and the vision casted, I kind of did some numbers. And here I am, like, making notes and doing numbers. I'm like, man, we're going to have to have at least 40 students to come on this trip to make it financially viable. We had 12. And so what did we start to do? We started praying. We started praying impossible God-sized prayers. Simply saying, God, you'll have to bring the students You'll have to bring the increase, and we trust that you will. I think we ended up taking 48 students to Florida. And it's just a a small picture of the power of prayer and how prayer, we are one simple, faith-filled prayer away from changing the direction of our lives. We are one simple, faith-filled prayer from changing the landscape of our city. We are one simple, faith-filled prayer from changing a person's life that we love. Because God is the one that does the hard work. And prayer has this amazing ability to bend the will of God. And we see it right here when Jesus says, go into your room, get undistracted, almost saying, you know what? Prayer really happens when we are not distracted by pleasures and by powers and by possessions. When we get those things out of our psyche and out of our way, it's as if God's like, aren't I so much better than those things? And again, it's just the enemy trying to distract and do whatever he can because he's determined and committed to our destruction. Church, it's really, really good news that the enemy is defeated. He's not dead yet, but he's defeated. The next time he puts a lure in front of your face, remind yourself that it is written. And then use God's word to combat that lie. And let me encourage you to start developing spiritual habits, which will really, really solidify your walk with God. 
Let me end with this statement and qualify what I mean by it. Church, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. If we don't have spiritual habits, our habits won't be spiritual. If we do not have spiritual habits, our habits won't be spiritual. The reason I say that is because it's not enough to just think about God to follow him. Just as it's not enough for me to think about my wife to have a relationship with her, I have to speak with her. I have to engage in a relationship with her. It's not enough for you to think about your kids to have a relationship with your kids. It's not enough for you to think about getting in your car and driving to work to get to work. You actually have to get in the car, start it, and drive to work. The same as is with our walk with God. It's not enough to just think about him, to follow him. Nowhere in Christian history is mental ascent the goal. If we don't have spiritual habits, our habits won't be spiritual. My fear is that someone clocked in here this morning that doesn't know Jesus and is like, what am I getting myself into or what have I gotten myself into? Let me just say this to you, whomever you are, and maybe there's no one in here and that's okay too, that, that God loves you a lot. And that his version of life that he offers each and every one of us is our best possible version of life, even if it includes suffering. Because the story of God, when we are included in it, we partner with God to restore and redeem all of humanity back to relationship with God, we begin to see why we exist. We exist to love God and love others. We exist to love God and love others. And I want you to know that God loves you a lot. And if you want to start a relationship with Jesus, there is a prayer room right here. And after worship, I would encourage you to go into that prayer room. We have a lot of powerful prayer warriors that would love to talk with you about what it means to start a relationship with Jesus. But for those of us who have been walking with God, let me encourage you with this. As you walk out of here today and you think about God, let your thoughts about God lead to action. Let your thoughts about God lead to sacrifice and practice. Let your thoughts about God turn into spiritual habits where you're engaging with God's word and engaging in prayer and you will begin to see the floodgates of God's love open up on your life and you will begin to see things that you have never seen before because the power of God is in his word and in through prayer and I can only try to persuade. You might have a totally different variety of ways that you connect with God. Mine is different. I, I connect with God in the morning through Bible and at prayer at night. That's just my routine. Your routine might look very different from that. It could look the same as that, but do you have one? So I pray that these words would fall on you with grace and mercy today, that they would compel you to action. And I'm just so excited to see what God does with that effort. Would you pray with me? Father, we're just, we're just really grateful for your mercy. We're grateful for your favor. We know that it's, it's not enough to just think about you, to follow you. And so I pray that we would begin to develop the kind of spiritual habits that would solidify our identity in you so much so that when the enemy puts the lures in front of our face, we can easily say, it is written. And tear down that lie piece by piece. 
So God, I pray that you'd release the power of your throne room into this place this morning, into each and every one of our hearts and set our hearts in your direction, God. We love you dearly. We love you so much. We are so grateful for your love for us. And I pray that you'd set a fire in our hearts as we engage in a new week. In your gracious name, Christ, we pray.
He's alive, His perfection, my sacrifice, sin defeated, glorious King, this changes everything, this changes everything. This changes everything. Our Father everlasting, the all-creating One, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus, our Savior, I believe in God, our Father, I believe in Christ, the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one, I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. next verse now. I judge and I defend suffered and crucified forgiveness is in you descended into darkness you rose in glorious light forever seated high I believe in God Christ the Son, 
believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. We're going to sing that chorus again. This time with a new set of lyrics. It's all about proclaiming what we believe today. So lift your voices with us. Let's proclaim this today. We are his people. We are his church. So sing it out with us now. I believe in life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints' communion. And in your holy church, I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints' communion. Can we thank the band for leading us in worship this morning again? Big thank you to Pastor Luke Edgerton. Didn't he do a fantastic job sharing with us? He'll be hanging right afterwards. You can remain standing as we close this morning's service. First of all, APB does have CDs out in the lobby. Wipe them out of those this morning. We also want to encourage you next Sunday, I'll be giving a one-week message called Citizen of Heaven. I want to invite you to invite somebody to be there as we talk about what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven first. As we head into election season, we are not political. We're not going to tell you to vote for, but we're going to ask God to show up in our nation this year. And then finally, be in prayer for our mission team that is coming back from Mexico right now. 